Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Details continue to emerge about the identities of the suspects in the disappearance of Jamal Khashoggi, and the details point directly to the Saudi crown prince. The U.S. has gone into diplomatic overdrive. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is in Turkey today to meet with President Erdogan. With me is Rashid Halidi. He is professor of Middle East history at Columbia University. Thanks for joining us, Rashid. Thank you, Jerome. Things do not seem to be getting any um, <laughs> easier in this. The Turks uh, had a one of their pro-government Turkish newspapers on Wednesday ran this account of audio tapes that were said to be recorded while Khashoggi was being tortured, killed, and dismembered. There's all sorts of details about who the people were in the Saudi entourage here. And we've got one of the top Saudi forensic people in their country there with a bone cutter. What do you see going on here? Well, two things. First is this sort of a striptease revelation of details about what's happening, which the Turkish government, not from the top, but various agencies of government are leaking which intrepid American reporters are aiding and abetting. The New York Times and the Washington Post have dug up enormous amounts on the apparent perpetrators of this murder. And on the other hand, we have a cover-up by the uh, Trump administration, which is trying to protect its Saudi ally and the president's son-in-law's good buddy, the crown prince Mohammed bin Salman. So the two processes are going on at the same time, a cover-up on the one hand and revelations on the other. This runs right into some of the most important U.S. policies in the Middle East. The Trump administration is very anxious to put some more sanctions on Iran. On November 5th, they were going to announce that any company that does business with Iran, buying oil, financing projects, investing in the country, are going to be prohibited from doing business in the U.S., They, including clearing transactions in dollars in, in the U.S. This is a heavy hit to Iran, can you really move forward with this kind of policy and still expect you know, Saudi Arabia to be your ally in this? And you're painting Iran as the bad guy in the region while Saudi Arabia is doing all this stuff. Well, what it looks like is that Jamal Khashoggi, the apparently the late Jamal Khashoggi, and many thousands of victims in Yemen are being sacrificed on the altar of the Trump administration's fanatical obsession with Iran. Um, they are going to do, it looks like, all possible to rehabilitate the sagging image of the boy crown prince in order to enable, exactly as your question indicates, in order to enable these swinging draconian sanctions against Iran to take force, which necessitates the Saudi oil production continuing to rise to meet any shortfall that results from Iranian exports being cut as a result of these sanctions. So I think what we're seeing is the administration desperately trying to salvage its policy of total obsession with Iran as the sole vector of evil in the entire Middle East, ignoring um, whatever may be done by stalwart American allies like uh, Turkey or, or Israel, or in this case, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is the oldest American ally in the region, going back to when under FDR in 1933, a major oil deal was signed with American companies. Long before the U.S. became a Middle East power, it already had this special connection with Saudi Arabia. So we're talking about really well over three quarters of a century of a relationship that this administration is desperate to preserve in spite of everything that's come out. 
The relationship you're detailing is so intertwined now. Uh, there's so many investors in Silicon Valley that are Saudis. You know, I use Slack every day, which is full of Saudi investment. Universities are full of Saudi investment. There's Saudi Arabia is everywhere in our economy. Well, I mean, the Saudis have bought a lot of protection. And that's basically what they buy. They buy weapons they never will learn how to use, have never been able to use for tens and tens and tens of billions of dollars, essentially as protection. We will buy this stuff, which will rust in the desert, in order for you to use your armed forces and your nuclear umbrella to protect us and your security services to protect us from external enemies and your security services to help protect us against internal enemies, which are a large part of the Saudi people. It's a bargain. It's a devil's bargain. And they don't just buy weapons and they don't just sell oil. Uh, they don't just buy uh, Boeing and, and Airbus airplanes. They don't just buy blocks in Paris and London and New York and so forth. They also buy public relations firms. And as you suggested, they buy universities. They've invested tens of millions of dollars at Berkeley, at Harvard, at Georgetown and in other places in Europe as well. Essentially buying the silence of academics, complacent academics, uh, compliant academics who skip over the nastiness of Wahhabism or the, the connections between Saudi Arabia and some of the more radical forces that operate as their proxies in places like Syria and Iraq or have operated in the past. And it has so far been a successful operation, one of the best PR operations outside of the one uh, that Israel runs in modern Middle Eastern history or the history of American Middle Eastern relations. It's breaking down over this murder of Khashoggi, but the Trump administration, and my guess is a lot of business leaders are going to do what they can to rehabilitate the relationship. You know, I mean, it sounds like the murder of one journalist in a Saudi embassy doesn't stand a chance against this onslaught of the history of the U.S.-Saudi relationship, that real politique is going to win and somehow this is going to brush up or go away, in spite of the fact that there seems to be considerable congressional opposition these days. I noticed Lindsey Graham came out with a lot of sharp things to say. He says, this guy's got to go. Um, there's a lot of other people you could stick in there. Let's move on to the next guy. Is Congress any kind of bulwark against this? Well, I think that Saudi Arabia lost a great deal as a result of this murder. And the crown prince in particular uh, lost a great deal. Um, the bloom is off the rose. Uh, he will never be able to present himself as a reformer. He will never be able to present himself as anything but a ruthless autocrat who's centralized all power in his hands and has essentially divested other branches of the royal family that shared in power, not only of their power, but also of a lot of their money uh, by imprisoning them. Some of them are still imprisoned and by basically forcing them to divest themselves of tens of billions of dollars in assets, uh, both business uh, associates of the royal family and members of the royal family. I don't think that that kind of ruthlessness is going to be, you're not going to be able to put lipstick on that pig anymore. However, I think you're right. I think that it is likely that uh, this is going to be papered over, at least by the administration. Will Congress be able to do anything about it? Well, Congress could. I mean, Congress has a lot of power where things like spending and arms sales are concerned. And the use of American weapons for non-defensive purposes, which is banned by law, but which is systematically done by U.S. allies like Saudi Arabia and Yemen or Israel and Gaza, is something that Congress at any moment could immediately stop. Uh, whether that will happen or not, I think partly depends on the midterm elections and partly depends on how much backbone these people have when the checks start flowing and the contracts uh, start coming again. And we will see. I I've never seen much backbone uh, from American Congress people, and I've seen very little ability 
of Congress to interfere with the imperial presidency over multiple administrations going back many decades. So we, we shall see. Going back to the Vietnam War, when Congress last seemed to you know, get up on its hind legs and perform its constitutional duties. I'm talking with Rashid Halidi, professor of Middle East history at Columbia University, and we're talking about the Khashoggi Affair in a few minutes. We're going to be talking about a new documentary, The Feeling of Being Watched, about the FBI's massive surveillance in Bridgeview's Muslim community. Stay with us. Um, Rashid, the war in Yemen has attracted some attention in Congress, and there's been a decent amount of support for bills that would curtail U.S. involvement in uh, the Saudi war in Yemen. Does this situation resonate differently now? Because the Saudis are killing a lot of people in Yemen. This is a large-scale humanitarian disaster with uh, food supplies and the bombing campaign. Well, precisely. The Saudi Emirati campaign there has killed, if you count malnutrition and disease, probably tens and tens of thousands of people. It is, as you suggest, one of the greatest humanitarian crises on earth today. This is a direct result of U.S. support for these two countries' adventurous and foolish and misguided attempt to impose things on Yemen. Um, out of an exaggerated fear of Iranian influence. I mean, there is Iranian influence that they have some reason to be concerned about, but this is a a massive overreaction. And at little cost to Iran has basically uh, sunk these two countries into a morass that they're going to have great difficulty extricating themselves from. A sensible ally would be slapping the Saudis and the Emiratis across the face and telling them, get out, we will not support this any longer. It's imbecilic. It doesn't suit your interests or ours. But that's not how this relationship works any more than the American-Israeli relationship involves American policymakers telling the Israelis that what they're doing is self-harming and self-defeating. Um, those kinds of hard truths are rarely uttered in these alliances um, with Turkey, with Saudi Arabia, with Israel. It seems like the U.S. works against its own interests in a lot of ways. Well, you're absolutely right, depending on what interests you're talking about. If the United States is big corporations, uh, it's working in the interests of everybody who's selling weapons or airplanes or uh, oil equipment to Saudi Arabia. If it's the interest of morality, human rights, spread of democracy, the United States is working against those interests. Saudi Arabia is the greatest beacon of reaction and opposition to democracy, constitutionalism, and, and human rights in the entire region. It is like Vienna and St. Petersburg were in the 19th century, the places where conspiracy against democracy and revolution and constitutions were hatched. Uh, Riyadh and, and, and Abu Dhabi are the two capitals of 21st century reaction in the Middle East. The exact opposite of everything the United States supposedly stands for. If that's American interests, then of course we're operating against American interests. But if you're talking about general dynamics and Citibank and Boeing, and the big oil companies, then what the United States is doing is absolutely in the U.S. interest. So it depends on what the U.S. interest is defined as. If it were just um, realist balance of power things, I guess you would stick with Saudi Arabia? Or, but, but if there is such a source of regional instability, uh, they're a liability. You would try to play them off against Iran. You would try to have a more even handed Middle East policy if, if you were really just sharply realist? Uh, uh, not so much playing, but balancing better American Middle East policy instead of this absurd one-sided uh, tilt towards Saudi Arabia and everything it does, absurd obsession with Iran, absurd 
uh, a leaning towards Israel, the Obama administration tried to slightly correct these things and brought down upon themselves the wrath of the gods. I mean, the Republican Party brought Netanyahu to Congress twice. Uh, Winston Churchill is the only person who spoke at the Congress more than Benjamin Netanyahu uh, to joint sessions of Congress. Um, And that's an indication of of how ferocious the opposition to the very minor corrections that the Obama administration tried to introduce into this absurdly one-sided policy vis-a-vis both Saudi Arabia and Israel uh, was. And the Trump administration represents a further hard turn to the right. I mean, much further than the Republicans have ever gone insofar as both alliances are concerned. Uh, so they claim to be, you know, hard nosed realists. In fact, they're obsessive ideologues who uh, believe things that only fantasists would possibly believe and uh, about Iran or about Saudi Arabia or for that matter about Israel. And so we have an, a policy that's so skewed that almost no American ally is capable of following it. Well, right now we've got um, a Saudi Arabia that we saw the kidnapping of the Lebanese prime minister. We saw them, uh, you know, snap back at Canada over some criticism of a dissident in Saudi Arabia. We've seen a lot of things go down. So that it seems like people who are scrambling to salvage something out of this relationship, um, Thomas Friedman in the New York Times today says that the thing that is salvageable about the crown prince is that he pushes back against the religious authorities. And uh, things could be worse in Saudi Arabia if you changed and you had somebody without his kind of backbone. What do you make of that argument? Well, I mean, I I, I long ago gave up reading Thomas Friedman. Um, He represents the establishment that wants to continue the relationship with this regime in spite of its appalling human rights record and in spite of its being the main opponent of democracy, constitutionalism, and representative government in the entire Middle East and much of the Muslim world, which is, to my way of thinking, an important position. Friedman happens to be right. The King Salman and his son, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, have in fact seriously curtailed the power of the religious establishment. There's absolutely no question uh, of that. And uh, I find that is a good thing. The problem is it's been done in an unbalanced and repressive and autocratic and high-handed way such that you're going to have a powerful reaction. They are throwing everybody who has expressed themselves into jail. Everybody. Everybody who has expressed themselves privately or publicly. Not just religious dissidents, political dissidents, human rights dissidents, women's rights advocates. Everybody. You can't do that without causing a backlash. This is not the way to run a 21st century country. The Saudis are a much more mature, more developed people than they were back when uh, the regime was run uh, with with a reactionary religious establishment uh, policing people. You can't do that in the 21st century. And it will it will cause a very severe backlash. And that might be very disruptive uh, whenever it comes. It may come from within the royal family. It may come from within the military It may come from civil society. It's one of the most repressed, highly policed societies on Earth. But you can slap people and, and, and hold them down only for so long. This is an educated population. It's a, it's a population that uh, wants rights like everybody else. They're happy to have cinemas. They're happy to have women driving. They're happy to have this ridiculous religious police not chasing after people in the streets. But that doesn't mean they're willing to give up their rights for those freedoms. Rashid Halidi is professor of Middle Eastern history at the Columbia University. And thanks for joining us and talking about what's going on with Saudi Arabia and the Crown Prince. A pleasure, Jerome. A pleasure.
Coming up after the break, we'll talk about a new documentary you should know about at the Chicago International Film Festival, The Feeling of Being Watched. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. There's a new documentary you should know about at the Chicago International Film Festival. The Feeling of Being Watched investigates the massive FBI surveillance of the Muslim community in suburban Bridgeview in the 1990s. Filmmaker Asim Boudawi foiled 33,000 pages of FBI files on Bridgeview. The New York Times called it a riveting film, at once a personal story, a journalistic thriller, and an essay on the nature of paranoia. Here's a clip from the film where people from Bridgeview talk about the surveillance. First time we saw a car parked was the fall of 1990. Every time I went for the groceries, I saw the car. I went to drop off the kids, I saw the car. And we kind of thought that our house was bugged too, that somebody was looking into our house all the time. When my kids were small, you know, to say, oh, it was the bomb, you know, like, that was the really cool thing. That was like the big word, and we couldn't use it. And I had to tell my kids, not almost like a swear word, you don't say that. You feel like someone's just invading your life, you know. I have a feeling that there is a camera, there is something watching, and you don't feel free, you don't feel safe. I don't remember how it felt to just know that I'm free in my home. This is my home. It's just ours. I don't have that feeling. The Feeling of Being Watched shows tomorrow at 5.30 and at 3.30 on Friday at the AMC River East at the Chicago International Film Festival. Filmmaker Asiya Boudawi is with me and is an old friend. used to work with us on Worldview. Nice to see you. Hey, Jerome. It's so great to be back here. Could you tell us what was going on in the 1990s in Bridgeview that required so much surveillance of your community and your family? I mean, uh, I'm not really sure what it was uh, that triggered it. Um, I know what we experienced. What we experienced at the time was uh, cars parked on the block for hours um, near the mosque and near the houses around the mosque. Um, FBI agents coming and uh, knocking on people's doors and asking to interview them and then asking them questions about each other, about other neighbors. Um, Those were our experiences. And uh, it took um, five filing this Freedom of Information Act, requesting the records to actually start to understand why the FBI was actually up to this. And, um, you know, um, when I was starting the investigation, I kept trying to find the geopolitical event or incident that might have been happening in the world that triggered this to happen. And, you know, when I thought it was the 1990, like 1993, 1995, I thought to myself, oh, you know, the Oslo Accords, um, what's happening in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict might have been the trigger. And then I found documents saying this started even earlier um, in the 80s. And then I thought, oh, maybe it was the end of the Cold War uh, that triggered it. But I kept finding documents that dated this going back further. Um, 
And I realized that it's not just a geopolitical event, that actually if you look at the history uh, of the FBI, um, there's a very long history of them uh, doing domestic surveillance on communities of color in America, of finding um, you know, the political mobilization of certain communities dangerous and a national security risk, um, that it wasn't actually a geopolitical event, but this is a systemic problem within the FBI of looking at the other uh, as suspicious. Now, uh, the people in the film, as we heard, uh, feel like they're being watched all the time. And there's what, and I don't think people really get, you know, uh, an inkling of what it's like to be watched like that. And this is old school watching before mm-hmm. the internet. I mean, now we all are feeling being watched a little more because of uh, surveillance on the internet. And there's a whole universe. This, this was like a, a kind of like a, a test tube of massive surveillance mm-hmm. that was going on there. Um, and it really affected people and their lives. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I can, I can say that I don't remember a moment where someone in my family told me we're under surveillance. It was something I always remember knowing. Uh, there was not a, a specific moment. It was just this pervasive feeling. And, um, you know, the way the way you walk changes. You you walk a different way. You talk a different way. When you think someone is watching, you censor yourself. Um, you act differently. And, and that's the pernicious nature of surveillance, that even when it's not happening, just thinking you're under surveillance is enough to change your behavior. And the kind of effect it had in our community was, was a chilling one. People were afraid to go to the mosque because you're not sure whether there are informants there. People are afraid to gather. Um, Students are afraid to um, sign up for the Muslim Student Association in their university because they're afraid that, you know, if you sign up, you're going to be on a list. So, um, you know, people watch themselves in these ways. It prevents them from acting. And that's a harder thing to put your finger on. Uh, It's easier to say, oh, this affected me this way because it uh, it made me act this way. But when when uh, a feeling makes you not act, it's harder to put your finger on it. It prevents you from actually doing certain things. And that's sort of the collective chilling effect this kind of surveillance had on my community and, and a bunch of other American Muslim communities. Uh, one of your neighbors was Mohammed Salah, who got, yeah, you know, I don't know, you could make an entire film about him and what he went through and the charges against him. But he is the closest thing to somebody in trouble in your community. And he gets, he's found not guilty of uh, any kind of terror-related charge eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what, they didn't have anything other than that? And this was, he was charged after 2001. They went back to charge him. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, they didn't have anything. And this is, you know, it's so emblematic. Um, you know, Mohammed Salah, who is a beloved member of our community and was my neighbor um, for such a long time, um, is is um, was made an example of and uh, was emblematic for for the problem with this whole thing, which is once you're painted with this red paint of terrorism, it sort of never comes off. And, you know, even though he was found not, not guilty, and even though he stayed on the terrorist watch list for so many years before the government sheepishly took him off, um, that still he was looked at as this man until, you know, until his last day as this man under suspicion. And this is the problem with this um, mass profiling and casting of suspicion is that it doesn't wipe off easily. And so what happened, you know, to Muhammad Salah as an individual happened to my entire community as a collective, this sort of red paint on the entire community that we are associated with terrorism, that there is something suspicious about this community. And that's the perniciousness in this 
in what the FBI does, that it's not just an investigation, that it's already uh, casting of suspicion. And I would say the title of the investigation, which is called Operation Vulgar Betrayal, speaks to that. Just in the name itself, uh, it's it's assuming um, suspicion. One of the nice things about the film is you get to see what a nice community you grew up in. It's really nice. You go door to door and talk with people and greet them as auntie and everybody knows you there. Um, you know, you've known each other for a long time. Uh, there's, you know, the point in the film where you talk about your father dying and the whole community uh, pays off your mortgage. It's mm-hmm. really anybody would love to be in the community you grew up in. Yeah, it's a beautiful, tight knit place where everyone knows everybody's names and people look out for each other. And it's been that way for a really long time. I mean, we come from such a beautiful place. So it's like, I know, you know, it's this uh, idea of like where you're standing and looking. So for such a long time, people stood outside of our community looking in and told this very particular story about us. And this is, uh, this film is about standing inside the community, looking around uh, and saying, this is who we are. This is how we grew up. And, you know, creating um, a very nuanced narrative about who we actually are. And your mother is a hoot. <laughs> yes. I really liked her. Yeah. She was hilarious talking about the FBI interviewing her and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all sorts of things. She, yeah. She's a... She's, she's a steen sealer. She's a character. You can't let her in. She's going to walk away with she's a whole the movie. Star. She's don't. actually the star of the film, yes. <laughs> uh, we're talking with Asiya Bundawi. Her film, The Feeling of Being Watched, is showing at the Chicago International Film Festival, 5.30 tomorrow and 3.30 on Friday at the AMC River East. And uh, coming up in about 10 minutes, we're going to chat with Catalina Maria Johnson about some of Chicago's uh, biggest Chicago global music acts. Stay with us for that. Um, I wanted to say something about the larger message of your film. And you talk about uh, the idea of Panopticon and how you feel it was at work in your neighborhood and that this is something that is going to be at work in our Hmm. larger community now in the future. And you've done a few things out there in the world and you're thinking more about these projects. Uh, What are we facing here with surveillance in your mind? I think, I mean, there are a lot of ways of looking at it. You know, people say we're surveilling ourselves on Facebook and, uh, you know, uh, these other social media platforms. But I would say it's more complicated than that. When I think about surveillance, I'm really thinking about a power structure, you know, a power dynamic that allows uh, one party to be totally invisible and the other party to be hyper visible. And I think that um, that the, the the just thing to do would be to balance that out. So what I mean by that is um, the government protects disclosure and uh, protects itself from having to be transparent and withholds um, information uh, on the basis of national security. But a lot of the times withholding this information prevents us from knowing what mistakes happened in these investigations. And when we know what mistakes happened, we prevent them from happening again. Um, and so, so we've got to watch the watchers. Yeah. So this idea of watching back. So making sure that we know that the government is also visible, that they're while they're conducting the surveillance, we know what they did. We, we look at the records and we're able to look back because there's a there's a real violence in this one way gaze. Surveillance is about a one way gaze and not being able to look back. And I think the only power we really have as people under surveillance is to say, we also have agency and we can look back and we can watch the government and hold them accountable uh, for what they're doing. You've been involved in some 
some kind of artistic events lately <laughs> where you went, you were at FBI headquarters uh, just a little while ago. What were you doing? So we've been doing this, this idea of inverse surveillance. So uh, we've been doing these guerrilla art projections um, at government buildings. So last week we were at the Hoover building in DC. Uh, and this is the building um, that has all these, that contains all these records. You know, every month I get uh, a CD-ROM with records from that building. So within this building are records about my family and about my community. And so we projected on the outside of the building the records themselves. And the records, mind you, are like highly redacted. There are all of these black holes in the records, you know, withholding information. Now, uh, you were saying there were 70% redacted? There's 70% redacted, yes. So Out of the 33,000 pages. Yeah, you've got <laughs> more than 70% redacted. And even when we do get a page, it's all of these black holes on it. So we projected the document with the black holes on the FBI building. And in the black holes, we projected my home videos uh, of my family in the 90s um, into the black holes, literally to juxtapose this very suspicious language the FBI used to describe us with what we were actually up to, picnicking and horseback riding and camping and just the mundane things we were actually doing in the 90s. Um, and the idea of this project is to sort of, you know, shine a light on the government and also to say we have some agency too, you know, that we can, we can make an artistic statement um, to intervene and to say, you know, we're here and we're watching and there are creative ways that we can do it. In the film, you're, you talk with some former FBI guys and the the name of the surveillance campaign the op- that they had was Operation Vulgar Betrayal. Right. And you're talking about it with an FBI guy and he clearly feels bad about that. <laughs> he's he's all embarrassed about this and, you know, because he doesn't – I mean whoever named it that – never talk to anybody involved in the search, you know, wouldn't sit down and say, well, you are the, obviously the vulgar person here. Uh, (laughs) Or the traitor. Or the traitor, you know, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so problematic, but it's because it's like, where's the presumption of innocence in this title? Aren't you supposed to presume that these people are innocent and then you investigate a crime? But when you call an investigation, vulgar betrayal, Especially kind of, if you're targeting everybody in the, yeah. in the investigation, you're not you're not targeting one yeah. person. Yeah, when the you're net targeting... is so wide, you know, and and the net was very wide. You know, what one thing that we found in these documents is more than 600 individuals, mosques, schools, and businesses uh, in the Chicagoland area and in some states around were uh, had information collected about them. So this was really a wide, a very wide net that was cast. Uh, this is your Chicago premiere of the film. The first yes. time people get to see it here in the Chicago area, you're going to have friends come. People from the community will come. It should be very interesting. Yeah, it's really very, very exciting <laughs> to finally be home with the film and to be able to show it to folks who you know have been in it, who have been seeing me film around the community for years now, um, and to you know and to reflect back. I think like a big part of making this film was also just creating a nuanced portrayal of who we are out there in, in the media landscape. And it's something very special when you see yourself reflected back, you know, um, and you see yourself in the characters and you see yourself in the story. And it's something that's beautiful and nuanced. And I think that's, 
you know, really what I wanted to create is a mirror that people can see themselves in. And you do question and answer talkbacks after the film, and you've been taking it to other festivals on the East Coast, starting at Tribeca and working your way and picking up awards and coming here. Yeah, it's been wonderful. We showed it at a bunch of different film festivals. We won um, audience awards at uh, a bunch of different film festivals um, in Boston at the Globe Docs Festival and Black Star in Philly and at the Camden International Film Festival. Um, each of those with very different audiences and, and different demographics at all the audiences. Sometimes they're all like over 70. Sometimes they're students. Um, it's been so wonderful actually seeing this resonate with all types of different people. I've had, um, you know, uh, really much older Japanese American women come up to me telling me, you know, thank you. Like we felt ourselves in this film. This resonates with us. Thank you um, for telling the story. I've had uh, younger people come up to me and say like, your mom reminds me of my mom. And like, there's something in the film for a lot of folks. And it's been really heartening to see it resonate, you know, across the country. Um, what yeah. do you, what do you do next with that? How do you, where do you, where do you go? So, so one of the biggest challenges was, you know, um, embarking on this journey to get the truth um, and uh, get these government records and then to, to get most of them and see them 70% redacted. There are all these black holes in them. That's been insanely frustrating. So what I'm working on right now, actually, uh, at a fellowship at the MIT Open Documentary Lab is an artificial intelligence project where we literally try to guess what's behind the black holes of the redactions. How do you do that? So the way we do that is um, uh, a lot of the uh, reasoning that they ha- they use to withhold information expires after 40 years. So like the national security reasons for blacking information out. So we have 100 years of records about the surveillance of other communities of color in America, from COINTELPRO um, and the black community to the Japanese American community to the Native American community. Um, All of these records that we're going to use basically as a data set for a machine learning algorithm where we try to guess or predict what's behind the black holes of the redactions in our documents. So previous um, previous redactions are going to tell you what was inside of the, the this redaction. Yes, exactly. It's it's a way of like archiving and using this historical information to understand the present and to understand the future and sort of predict what might be next. Brilliant. Thank you. Filmmaker Asia Bundawi, you can see the feeling of being watched at the AMC River East, 5.30 tomorrow and 3.30 on Friday. It's part of the Chicago International Filmmaker Film Film Festival, and it's great to see you, Asia. Congratulations again on the film. Thank you so much, Arun. Coming up after the break, we'll have global notes and listen to some of the global sounds of Chicago. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and it's time for Global Notes, our look at international music with Catalina Maria Johnson. Catalina is a music and culture writer. She's host of Beat Latino. Great to see you. Great to see you, Jerome. Great to be back, as usual, and sharing some music from uh, from around the world, but not so far, right here from Chicago. So we're going to have Chicago sounds uh, of Global Notes. So that's a terrific thing. That's a terrific <laughs> thing. Who is this? This is uh, Gladys Ndi, and her background is from Guadalupe, and the song is called Creole Blues. So you can hear sort of the Afro-Caribbean bent, but of course there's the blues subtext, which is all connected anyway, but it's also very Chicago, and she plays at different places around town and uh, is a delegate at Womex in 2018, so she's taking the Chicago sound to all the way to the Canary Islands. Very nice. <laughs> Uh, and a lovely voice, uh, tremendous. And great presence. So we have a lot of global riches and global treasures right here, right in our backyard. So wanted to highlight them a little bit and particularly some that may be less familiar to our audiences. So we're going to swing over now and talk with some music that will sound um, vaguely Indian but also incorporates other uh, genres and elements. And the blues. <laughs> it's Raga Blues. This is the Sudabi Ensemble. from the Sarabi Ensemble, and that is just great-sounding stuff. Just hums right along. That's beautiful music. And the Sarabi Ensemble is actually, the members are kind of superstars from a number of different uh, Chicago groups. It was founded by Chicago Vina Maestra <laughs> Saraswati Rangatanan, and it includes other colleagues that she's collaborated with in different projects, including Carlo Basile from Guitarras España. He's a wonderful flamenco-style guitarist, as as well as Ronnie Malley and uh, On the Oud. So this is a, an amazing ensemble with some very top-notch Chicago-based musicians. And their projects are, are special. I've uh, loved hearing about uh, they have a global peace tour they perform a lot in the community and the schools as well as like fa- the fancier venues so this is uh, the Surabi Ensemble is one to keep your eye out for 
We've had Saraswati on the program, and uh, I know she's been on Morning Shift as well and brings that great big long vena in and uh, hauls it around and uh, sits sits down and really um, is a, such a beautiful player. It's unbelievable. It is, and she's uh, just so well-versed in her music and her art, and it's a, it's a, one of the most beautiful instruments that one could ever see. But I love the way she surrounds it with these other very talented ensemble musicians and, uh, of course, brings it back to the blues <laughs> in Chicago. So you never forget that, that they were also tied to Chicago. Keep your eye on the Sarabi Ensemble website for where they're playing. They're, they're playing frequently, just did a gig at City Winery not too long ago. And uh, what's next? Well, this is a very fascinating musician, I would say, kind of in the jazz pianist mold, Stu Mindeman, and he's Chicago-based also, but his father was a member of the Santiago Symphony, and that's Santiago in Chile. So his formative years were were tied to Chile, and this album, which is uh, brand new, ties back to those roots, has a number of very famous Chilean luminaries involved, including Ana Tijoux. And this is, the album is Woven Threads, and this is a song that includes the wonderful hip-hop artist from Chile and France, Ana Tijoux. No esperaba uno que se acabara La primavera sus esquinas Ninguna flor apareció con la dulzura de su brisa Se acabó la risa y su sonrisa Todo murió con matemática precisa Nadie te avisa cómo vivir un duelo El otro no se muere, uno se muere con el otro en el proceso Y eso confieso que se queda impreso en cada beso El peso del peso te deja deshecho en un deceso En lo ínfimo, íntimo, mínimo y el ánimo tímido Queda incometílico y lo vivido en el sentido Sin sentido, herido, un finiquito todo tiene término Paremos el juego, tú y yo sabemos cada manipulación que lanzamos el fuego Me rindo, te la cedo, me alejo, ya no me la juego bringing sends of Santiago, Chile, and that was a wonderful conglomeration of sounds. Really, really persuasive. I love that. And if you're listening to the trumpet, you may wonder who that amazing trumpet player is, and that's Marquis Hill. So wow. that has the Chicago side and then the Chile side, and it's brought together by pianist and composer Stu Mindeman's new album, Woven Threads. Sounds very nice. I'm not sniff around at that. <laughs> now, um, next we're going to go on to something in the groovier realm. <laughs> Definitely. Not that that wasn't groovy in hip, but this will be more. Extra groovy. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's kind of psych, surf, rock, Latin kind of 
Latinx thing happening, and it's Divino Nino. I think sometimes when when we think of Chicago's Latinx sounds, we think of we have a very strong Puerto Rican folkloric as well as Mexican folkloric scene. They're incredibly rich um, that are traditional and rooted, but we also have some very, very kind of uh, contemporary sounds, and this is Divino Nino. There's Davino Nino, and their song is Shady Sexy Fornia <laughs> off of the Shady Sexy Fornia tapes, their album. <laughs> the background of the members includes Colombia, and there's a very famous divine child, Divino Nino de Jesus from Bogota, which I think that might be referencing, but of course the, the music is anything but uh, religious. <laughs> Doesn't sound like but it, 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 they certainly got a great sound, and uh, I've I've heard them around, and they're, they're and they've they're been featured, there. yeah, in our Rido Festival here, um, which happens in the summer. Which is, if anybody's interested in really contemporary Latinx sounds from around Latin America as well as Chicago and the U.S., that's the one to watch. So. Here we're going to get a little more traditional and kind of a very fascinating kind of U.S. context for a Honduran pop star from a few years back, but now based in Chicago, Charlie Baran. And this band created around him in many ways. He's the front man, the vocalist, and drawing on folklore roots that are definitely tied into Central America and the Honduran punta rock, which was sort of traditional Central American Honduran music gone rock. (laughs) So this is Radio Free Honduras. We're going out on Honduras in Chicago. Chevy, chat, me chuvia la cabeza, anda, 
you have Radio Free Honduras bouncing around. Otra cerveza? What's going on there? <laughs> well, it's actually Otra Cerveza, another beer. But Chevecha is also kind of like a you know nickname for beer. And, and so it's about another beer. <laughs> and <laughs> he, it's the perfect I, music. I guess for... he wants another beer, doesn't he? <laughs> uh, it's like, you know, one more like for for the... This moment, one more cerveza. Well, they do a little bit of uh, dancing with Radio Free Honduras, and they have a, a monthly gig that they play at the California Clipper, and yeah. they play around the Midwest as well. That's right, and have represented Chicago in uh, folk conferences around the country. So Chicago's got, you know, an, a little bit, it's a little bit hard to find sometimes, so I'm hoping that this will turn people on in some directions to find in, and really discover our own global richness right here, smack in, in our city. Thanks for bringing Chicago's international sounds to us. Catalina Maria Johnson, you can hear her on uh, Beat Latino, on Vocalo. She writes music and culture all sorts of places, is often featured on the NPR website. And you can follow her on social media at Catalina Maria J, which is a great way to stay up to date on cool things. Thanks a lot for joining us, Catalina. Thanks, Jerome. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about the schism. We may be on the verge of the biggest schism in the Christian world. We'll talk about what's happening in the Orthodox Church tomorrow on Worldview. We'll also have our global activism segment and talk about the Women's Global Education Project. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.